1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Ripple 20 vulnerabilities are reported in the IoT software supply chain. North Korean operators go for intelligence, but also for cash and their fishing in LinkedIn's pond. Sino-Indian tensions find expression in cyberspace. A long look at the Russian influence operations, secondary infection. Al-Qaeda is back and asking its adherents to consider e-Jihad. Joe Kerrigan from Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute on why older adults share more misinformation online. Our guest Will LaSala from OneSpan tracks the increase in online banking fraud during COVID-19 and the strange case of the bloggers who angered eBay may have more indictments on the way. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, June 17, 2020. The Israeli security firm JSOF reports the discovery of 19 zero days, collectively called Ripple 20, that afflict the Internet of Things software supply chain. Their flaws in software that handles the TCPIP protocol and the low-level TCPIP library that contains them has been out since the late 1990s. Trek, the company that developed the code in question, has fixed its products, but as Wired observes, that software is at the beginning of a long and complicated supply chain through which vulnerabilities propagate in difficult-to-control ways. The research team says that, quote, Affected vendors range from one-person boutique shops to Fortune 500 multinational corporations, including HP, Schneider Electric, Intel, Rockwell Automation, Caterpillar, Baxter, as well as many other major international vendors suspected of being vulnerable in medical, transportation, industrial control, enterprise, energy, telecom, retail and commerce, and other industries, end quote. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, looked at the bugs and rated six of them as scoring between 7 and 10 on the CVSS scale, where 10 is the most severe. CISA recommended that users take steps to minimize the risk of exploitation, including placing vulnerable devices behind firewalls and removing connections to the public internet. Such mitigations may be easier recommended than accomplished. JSOFT began quietly disclosing the vulnerabilities to vendors back in February, and many of them have already been patched. But IoT devices are notoriously easy to overlook, and in any case, a lot of the buggy code may still be undetected. The security company ESET describes a North Korean campaign of targeted attacks against European defense and aerospace companies. They call it Operation Interception, and it has two purposes— Espionage and Financially Motivated Business Email Compromise Pyongyang's operators start with LinkedIn, proffering meretricious job offers to workers at selected companies. They seek to develop relationships into sources of information. They also, in some cases, work to compromise their email accounts in order to induce companies to fall for fraudulent fund transfer requests. This is consistent both with North Korea's intelligence requirements and its chronic need for cash. Border skirmishes with China have moved India's government to a higher state of alert, both Kinetic and Cyber, the Economic Times reports. The Hindustan Times outlines one aspect of that alert, publication of the National Security Council's Secretariat's list of 52 apps it finds too close to the Chinese government for comfort. Some of the apps are well-known and widely used. Zoom and TikTok, to name two, are both on the list. India's intelligence services would ideally like to see the 52 suspect apps blocked. Grafica has published a new study of secondary infection, the Russian disinformation operation. The report concludes that secondary infection has been in continuous operation since 2014 and that it's run by a single unidentified controlling agency – and that it's been relatively quiet, at least compared to the noisier operations of the GRU and the Troll Farming Internet Research Agency. Graphica gives the operation high marks for security, which can be attributed in part to secondary infections' tendency to prefer short-lived, often single-post blogs, single-use burners to social media, where coordinated inauthenticity would be easier to spot. But it's not clear how effective the operation has been, Its posts have a record of low engagement rates. They made unusually heavy use of forged documents, and their linguistic capabilities have been uneven, to say the least. The French, German, and English they use are poor, and marked by the usual stigmata of a non-native speaker with roots in a Slavic language. Poor grasp of the idiomatic use of articles, uncertainty about case, especially the genitive— eccentric word order, and, in French and German, trouble handling grammatical gender. Think of the diction one finds in an easily recognized phishing attempt. With respect to English, at least, the Kremlin has linguists who could do much better. Secondary infection stuff reads like bad North Korean agiprop. It's not even the playfully mangled language of the old shadow brokers, with a wink and a nudge— The brokers always achieved a wacky kind of lyricism that any fair-minded person would appreciate. This stuff is just poorly executed. Here's an example, an attack against the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensics Research Lab, which outed secondary infection last year. Quote, Yes, the forensic experts were wrong about almost everything, but they thought the existence and spread of a different opinion from their employees was a serious threat, and devil take it, that tickles my pride. End quote. Devil take it indeed, and if we may say so, the Atlantic Council's DFR lab should wear that as a badge of honor. In any case, Grafica finds nine themes that have dominated secondary infections output since its inception. Ukraine as a failed or unreliable state, U.S. and NATO aggression or interference in other countries, European divisions and weakness, elections especially in the United States, United Kingdom, and France, migration and Islam. Russia's doping scandals in various sports competitions, Turkey as an aggressive, destabilizing power, defending Russia and its government, and insulting Kremlin critics, including Alexei Navalny and Angela Merkel. These are often supported with implausible forgeries. Many of the topics suggest that secondary infections work was, if not directed toward, at least imaginatively dominated by a Russian domestic audience. Secondary infection is not, as several headlines have suggested, a newly discovered operation, as Grafica explains. Facebook flagged the operation as coordinated inauthentic behavior in May 2019, although not under the secondary infection name, and the Atlantic Council described and named it last June. So what's new in Grafica's report? It's the extensive catalog of secondary infections works, And reading through them teaches, again, the lesson that OPSEC by itself isn't enough for efficacy. We may not know which subdirectorate in which Russian service ran these messages, but how much does that really matter in the long run? Again, Moscow has groups like Fancy Bear and the Internet Research Agency who've shown they can do much better. Graphica does have one quietly interesting suggestion. Looking at the very low engagement rates secondary infections output produced, They suggest that maybe the operators were paid for output, not reach. So, as a famous Russian thought leader once remarked, quantity has a quality all its own, and we'll add that in this case the quality was pretty bad. It's well known that the folks out there who are up to no good online have taken the COVID-19 crisis as an opportunity, using the uncertainty as a way to take advantage of the unprepared or unprotected Will Lasala is director of security solutions at OneSpan, where they've been tracking an increase in online banking fraud
0: during COVID-19. So I think the main thing that you see with the pandemic, so before the pandemic, fraud was kind of steadily rising. Uh, People were starting to make the change gradually to digitization, in other words, using digital processes. You know, you were getting to a point where um, there were some people that were remote, that kind of thing. But then the pandemic started. And it was a mad rush for everybody to kind of embrace the digital world that we live in, none more so than the banking industry.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I guess I hadn't really considered that, you know, in this age of online banking and and, uh, slinging money around via our mobile devices, that there are still a lot of functions uh, of day-to-day banking that uh, traditionally, and and I guess to this day, have taken place face-to-face.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, think about um, so the older generation so uh, I, you know I, I think I'm probably an older generation person too but the people even older than us um, they you know typically do their banking um, kind of in a face-to-face uh, aspect so they're still writing paper checks they're still going you know into the branch offices and we're interacting with tellers so all of a sudden they can't do that anymore what do they do so they're not gonna uh, gravitate to a mobile phone like the younger generation did they're gonna pick up the phone and call call centers. And so call centers were completely overrun. And not just that, but think about the hackers now. So if you've got everybody calling in there and you're a hacker and you impersonate someone else, how do you prove that user? And so you saw all kinds of fraud on some of these more traditional channels that you wouldn't even think of normally.
1: Are you tracking any differences between the the size of the institutions? I guess I'm wondering, does does that local community bank have any advantage by being nimble or, or does the big uh, you know, nationwide bank have the advantage of having so many resources behind them?
0: You know it's interesting so the smaller banks are actually having a harder time of it because a lot of the times they are more of a you know a friendly bank so you want to go in and transact with them. They do most of their business in person versus online whereas a big bank, most stuff is done online we also have to think internally, the employees of those banks, when they needed to do work, the small banks, they immediately, everybody started working from home, pretty much you 90, 95 percent of the people that were employed at the bank started working from home versus the large banks. It was exactly the opposite. So maybe only about 10 or 15 percent of the bank worked from home and the rest of the bank uh, was still in the offices, still kind of going from there. And that also had to do with how quickly they can get security components in place. So moving to mobile authenticators that could generate a mobile password uh, and and getting those out to the workforce. That was also a big kind of shocking difference between the small and big banks.
1: That's Will LaSala from OneSpan. And finally, indictments in the case of the former eBayers, the people who allegedly executed a campaign of harassment against two bloggers whose negative reviews and the comments those reviews attracted, vexed some numeros at the online marketplace may not be complete apparently the six people so far indicted may not be the last the u.s attorney prosecuting told cbs news that the investigation was active and ongoing are there lessons here yes indeed some of them are platitudes you catch more flies with sugar than vinegar for example or in this case with pig masks porn or live cockroaches Corporate communications, PR consultants, corporate councils, and security teams could all learn a great deal from this strange story. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He is from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, great to have you back. Hi, Dave. Uh, Interesting story came by from uh, the MIT Technology Review, um, and it's titled, Older Users Share More Misinformation. Your guess why might be wrong. What's going on here, Joe?
2: That's right. This is actually research from a postdoc at Harvard named Nadia Brashear, and uh, Dr. Bashir has done some work here and found out that there are some stereotypes uh, about older people as to why they might share uh, more misinformation on social media. Now, they do share more misinformation. That's, that's pretty clear. But hmm. uh, the reason why, people might say it's because they are suffering some kind of cognitive decline because they're older uh, and they might be lonely. Those are the two reasons that people – seem to think uh, that that older people might do this, but they are not valid reasons as to why this hap- is happening, according to Dr. Bashir's uh, research. And what hmm. she said was that recollection will decline with age, but our ability to process and understand information remains the same as we get older. And in general, uh, knowledge improves, which is one of the things that we've talked about before, uh, both on Hacking Humans, I think here on this show, is that hmm. Uh, that older people are actually less likely to fall for a scam than younger people are um, Hmm. probably because of their experience with the world. And they don't (laughs) forget their their cynical approach. They've been burned before. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. And yeah, they just know, Oh, this is, this is BS. I'm not falling for this, but uh, it's, it's not, it's not because of a decline in in cognitive abilities at all. It's that's, that's really not what's happening. Uh, And the other reason is loneliness. Uh, older adults are not the loneliest age group. Uh, in fact, it's a complex relationship according to another paper that, that she cites in in this, uh, in her paper that says it, it kind of fluctuates across time, uh, peaking in, in the, um, in late twenties, mid fifties and late eighties. So mm. in general, no, they're not the oldest. Um, there is something that she points to, which I think is actually interesting. Um, This article talks about the fact check. Social media platforms often rely on fact checks to show that this information is either not correct, right? So you might see a label that says this information is false on it. And that label ironically increases older adults' belief in the claim later. And Hmm. that actually stems from another study that was done by uh, Ian Skernick, Carolyn Yoon, Denise Park, and Norbert Schwartz, that says that telling people that a consumer claim is false can actually make them misremember it as true. Hmm. And they conducted some experiments on this. Uh, so that might be one of the reasons that when, when they see false on a, on a statement, they're misremembering it as true. Interesting.
1: Just the, the highlighting of the statement at all, I guess, gets perhaps miscategorized. Uh, yeah.
2: Yeah. Interesting. I, interesting. I still still think that social media is not a valid platform for political discussion. <laughs> I just don't think it's uh, – I'm still I'm still going to say that. Uh, even, even today uh, when there's a lot of stuff happening on social media, I just don't think that it is a – that anything constructive happens on there. I've actually uninstalled all my social media apps from my phone for the sake of my own mental health. I uh, mm. haven't yet closed my accounts. Um, I've just stopped looking at them as much.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting thing they note in this article uh, in the MIT Technology Review. They say that uh, – In addition to having less familiarity with social platforms than younger generations, older adults tend to have fewer people on the edges of their social spheres and tend to trust the people they do know more. That's right. Which I suppose leads to being more in a bubble, more of an echo chamber.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually my biggest problem with social media is that you are in an echo chamber. um, Hmm. and. It's it's probably targeting the older people more. I'm gonna have to read the paper uh, that Dr. Bashir Bashir has written um, because, uh, and I've printed it out. I got it right here, actually. About to go sit down and read it because this sounds interesting to me. I'm very interested in it. Uh, Dr. Bashir is actually a cognitive scientist, uh, and I think we need more cognitive scientists and, and psychologists and maybe sociologists even in this field in the cybersecurity field uh, doing research on this. Um, I think that would provide valuable valuable insight to the way people conduct themselves.
1: Yeah, no, it's an interesting article. Uh, it's from the MIT Technology Review titled, Older Users Share More Misinformation. Your guess why might be wrong. Joe Kerrigan, as always, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dave. Joe Carrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Filecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Mo, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor SpyCloud SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyberattacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data,